good morning. Our Lord has yet again given us another week where we are able to be together and to praise his name as a family, to pray to him together, to hear what he's doing in our lives, to submit ourselves to his word. Uh, yet again this week, God is pouring out his goodness and his blessings on us. We're very grateful. Uh, be joining me in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Galatians uh, chapter 5. We looked quickly at, at verse 1 of chapter 5 last week as we finished out chapter 4. We'll spend our time this morning in verses 1 to 6. If you were here with us last week, what, what we have begun to see now is Paul starting to conclude his argument and appeal section of this letter that has taken the past several chapters uh, as he's built this argument to them. And last week what he did was he brought in uh, what we saw is an oft-repeated theme, uh, not just in the written text of Scripture, it is oft-repeated in Scripture, this theme, but we found last week it's oft-repeated in redemptive history, in the way that God has led his people. Uh, it's the theme of God's blessing coming by means of his promises that he makes, even in the face of and against, oftentimes, natural means. This is what Paul uh, added to his argument as he's bringing, as he's bringing it to a, to a close at the end of chapter 4. Uh, and what he showed us there is that God has long been doing this. He's long been demonstrating uh, this priority of trusting in his sure promises. He's done that by causing the line of promise throughout history to pass through children of promise. You remember that uh, concept from last week, children of promise, as opposed to children of the flesh. And what we saw then is that often in the biblical story, that line of promise is happening and coming amid scenarios of barrenness uh, in order to make the point abundantly clear. When you have time and time again, barren women passing on this line of God's promise, uh, and successfully so, one thing is plain, God is at work. And his promises came to pass uh, through nothing uh, in, in ourselves, nothing in our flesh. But notice, even there last week, in what he was doing, he was continuing to relate truth to the Galatians by means of pictures. I mean, that's a, that's a sort of a picture. He spoke of it as an allegory. Hagar and Sarah corresponding to these two covenants. He, he, he's bringing these to the, things to them by means of pictures. And we've seen him use a lot of metaphors and imagery in what he's been doing uh, here in his letter, especially in chapters 2 and 3. Uh, let me just remind you of how extensively he has done that here. We've, we've heard him speak metaphorically in chapter 3, verses 23 to 25, about the law covenant as a uh, as a pedagogue, as a child's guardian. Uh, he opened chapter 4 with the metaphor of an underage child and how that underage child is just like the household slave when it comes to actually receiving the inheritance of the family. There's pictures there. Uh, when he started to actually exhort them, in chapter 4, verse 12, he did so with a very general phrase. You remember he, he said there, Become as I, for I also as you. <laughs> Very generally worded as he's beginning to move to the end of his argument. And his next exhortation to them came in chapter 4, verse 30, through yet another piece of imagery. He said there last week, cast out the slave woman and her son. I mean, image, picture, metaphor. I, I'm putting all of these together to review here to point out to you that in one sense, one thing Paul has not really been yet, is blunt. He's been, I, I don't mean to say he's not been provocative or controversial uh, to them, that sort of thing, he very much has. But what he's been doing so far has very much been to play the role of a teacher to them. He's doing the kinds of things that a good teacher does in using a lot of picture and imagery and metaphor to help them understand what it is that they've been missing. Lots of visual writing. And when we stop and notice how much he's been doing that up to this point, I think it will help us 
as we read this morning's passage, because we'll much more easily sense what a change it is in Paul's tone as he comes into chapter 5. And as I've thought about it, the best word I can think of to speak of this is the word blunt. Paul is done with imagery and metaphor. And before we'll look at how we'll organize and approach the passage, let's just begin by hearing his words here. Uh, So if you are able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. I'll read from the English Standard Version. Galatians 5, verses 1 to 6. And we begin with this, in verse 1, the transition from the end of chapter 4 into what he's going to do going forward. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you, that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We're going to approach these six verses by arranging them into two groups. Uh, And verse 4 will come in both groups. So verse 4 will get a little bit of extra attention. The first thing we'll see in verses 1 to 4, is to see Paul give what amounts to a blunt warning to believers. A blunt warning to believers. And second, in verses 4 to 6, we hear Paul give a blunt description of faith. And I hope by the time we're done this morning, you'll understand why I'm choosing to use the word blunt for both of those situations. Uh, It's easy to understand how a warning could be blunt in verses 1 to 4, but how can you describe faith in a blunt way? Uh, that may be a little bit less clear. Well, when I think of someone, maybe you think of the word differently. When I think of someone speaking bluntly, what I envision is somebody speaking truth in a context where often people feel the need to tread lightly, choose their walk on eggshells. Uh, There's some sensitivity into how it might be understood. Maybe in that particular time context, there are some peripheral issues, and so we feel like we can't speak very directly, and then someone comes in and just says the thing. That's what I think of when I think of the word blunt. Uh, And I use that word in that second uh, section, verses 4 to 6, because that's, I think, what Paul does here surrounding the concept of faith. He's going to speak very clearly about the primacy of faith and the true nature of faith. And it seems to me he's going to do that with some more directness than we might be accustomed to in our time. And I uh, personally, I think hearing that kind of bluntness will be and can be very good for us. We, we need to be a people who become, who grow in our ability to hear blunt words and even at times to give blunt words. That may be a weakness of our particular time and cultural setting. First, though, let's consider the blunt warning that he gives to the Galatian Christians here. Let me read again the first four verses. He said this, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. And stop there. Now the first question we have to ask is, on what basis do I even say that Paul is consciously addressing Christians here? We can't just make that assumption or take it for granted. 
Um, and we, so we need to look at that. But it's also very important in understanding what he is doing here that we grasp that he is, in fact, consciously speaking in these warnings to believers. So let's consider this. We can approach this question, is he talking to Christians self-consciously by looking at what else he has said in the wider letter? Uh, that will be helpful to us, but also by hearing some of what he says in this passage uh, as well. So first, thinking about what he has said to, these, to this audience outside of our uh, passage this morning. Let me just remind you of some things, and you can hear it if you'd like to look and see as we go through. Um, you're welcome to do that. Do you remember it, how he addresses the letter in verse 2 of the first chapter? Who is this letter addressed to? Well, it's addressed there to the churches of Galatia. And he doesn't just stop there, he describes them. These are the people, his audience, of whom he could write that Christ gave himself for our sins. This is what he has said concerning his audience. They are those who, in Galatians 1.6, he says that Christ, uh, excuse me, that they were called by the grace of Christ. This one I would like you to see. Look at, back at chapter 3, verses 2 to 5. This is... This is compelling in terms of understanding how he is thinking about the audience he's writing to. Galatians 3, verses 2 to 5. Remember when he said this, let me ask you only this. Another moment of some bluntness from Paul that we've seen. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And stop there. Seems like it's been quite a while since we've been back in that passage. But notice what he's telling them here. His audience are those who, in verse 2 there, received the Spirit, and those who, in verse 5, had the Spirit supplied to them and testified to them by miraculous signs in their midst. How is he thinking of the ones he's writing to? These are believers he's been writing to this entire time, giving these warnings. In chapter 4, verse 6, they're a part of the our, O-U-R, the our statements, when Paul said that God has sent forth the Spirit into our hearts, he wrote to them. And last week in verse 31 of chapter 4, he said of himself and his audience, he said, brothers, we are children of the free woman. Right? He's not been unclear or ambiguous about how he is regarding their relationship to God. Uh, he has been pushing them, though, throughout the letter. He's been chastising them, much like a shepherd who needs sometimes to give a nudge to his sheep with his staff. So we've seen him along the way express, Galatians 1.6, he expressed amazement at how quickly they have come to this crisis of faith. We just read, as he told them in 3.1, that they were being foolish. Uh, and he admitted to being perplexed about them in Galatians 4.20. Uh, he, he has made his, his concern for them and even his frustration in their case abundantly clear. He's not hidden that either. But listen, those are not things that will never be said about believers, are they? Have you never lived through a time in your Christian life where those who know the Lord and who love you and God has put around you have not had to come and to give a kind of correction or warning or pointing out a, 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 a sometimes deep hypocrisy in what you're doing or what you're starting to believe? You never needed to be corrected in a difficult moment. If you have not, you will. We all have those, those times. That is an inevitable part of life in Christ. It's why he gives us one another. It's part of why he gives us one another. And so notice even what, what I just went through. That's, that's just outside of our text this morning. But within our text, we find Paul continuing that same kind of dichotomy. So he says in verse 1 that Christ has set us free. And it's on that basis that he urges them to continue to stand firm. 
You notice that? That's his command in, in chapter 5, verse 1 here. Stand firm. Continue to stand firm. He speaks in verse 2 of their accepting circumcision. He speaks of that as a hypothetical potential situation. He says, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. We need to notice the if there. They are clearly at some dangerous place where they are beginning to consider some of these arguments, and it's hence the need for him to be so stern at times in this letter. But it's helpful for us to see that because what we'll find in verse 4, for example, here, uh, is Paul warning them about what would happen if they proceed on into apostasy. Listen to what he says there in verse 4. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Now, that, just the way that that's worded can be misleading. It can be confusing. That's why I've taken the time to, to help us to see how he is viewing this audience. For him to say, you are severed from Christ, could be uh, misunderstood by us to think that that's what he's, he's, he's analyzing them. Mm, yeah, you've been severed from Christ. You're severed at this moment. It's not what he's doing at all. Well, the way we need to understand these two statements in verse 4, the statement of uh, severed from Christ and the statement of falling away from grace, is uh, with a, uh, and I, I grew a little bit this week. I came across a word that I had never heard of before. Let me share with you this new word of mine. Uh, one man comments here about what Paul's doing, and he said this. Maybe you have heard this word. He said, Paul proleptically visualizes the terrible consequences of their behavior. Have you ever heard of that word before? Proleptically? It was, I'll just be very honest with you, it was a new one to me. Proleptically. To say something proleptically is to speak of something in anticipation of future events that have not yet happened. So what Paul is doing in verse 4 is he is thinking of what is going to happen if they go down this road, if they do this. Uh, he's anticipating what's going to happen. And it's very interesting, actually, both of those verbs there, when he says, you are severed from Christ and you have fallen away from Christ. Did you know those are actually verbs written in a kind of past tense for him? Uh, and, and there is a specific usage, another thing I learned about this week, of this past tense. You've heard the word aorist. These are aorist verbs. That just means a past tense. But you use those in specific situations oftentimes. And one of those is, I mean, you look it up in the dictionary. They call it the proleptic aorist. The proleptic aorist. This is a category for the usage of that. To, they, they will use that verb form when they are trying to proleptically speak of something, when they're trying to speak of hypothetical outcomes that will happen of this event. So that's what Paul's doing here. He's speaking to Christians. A Christian is not severed from Christ. A Christian has not fallen away from grace. A true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ cannot fall away from grace. Why? Because they're being held on to by the very one who saved them in the first place and who has made promises to them concerning the fact that he never fails to finish what he starts. That's why a Christian never falls away from grace in that way. He's warning these believers, though, about what will happen if they walk away from Christ if they continue down this road of apostasy. And if that sounds a bit confusing to you, don't worry. We're going to consider this more carefully here this morning. But let's first just notice in the text, what is it that he says he is warning them against? What's the behavior or the activity that he is trying to dissuade them of? He speaks of it in verse 2 and verse 3 and verse 4. But he says it a little bit differently, especially in verse 4. Notice in verse 2, what's the warning against? Verse 2, he says, if you accept circumcision. Verse 3, he says it very much the same way. Every man who accepts circumcision. And then he says it again in verse 4. But it doesn't sound the same. Look at verse 4. What is he warning them against there? You who would be justified by the law. This is how he puts it in verse 4. That particular way 
he phrases the danger there is very helpful. Because someone could come to this, especially if they haven't done what we have done and walk carefully through the letter to the Galatians. Someone could come to verses 2 and 3 and be confused and think that his main concern is with the act of circumcision itself. But when Paul warns them there against accepting circumcision, it's clear that he's talking about the decision on the parts of these adult Galatians to become circumcised, to receive the the rite, R-I-T-E, the sign of circumcision as a religious rite, as a sign of adopting a certain approach to being in God's presence. What they are doing, if they are persuaded by the Judaizers who have been putting this pressure to them, is, as he puts it in verse 4, they are seeking to be justified by means of the law. They might not even understand that that's what they're doing. And so Paul tells them here, this is what it will, what, what it will constitute. If you accept circumcision, it's not just a mere adoption of a particular religious practice that you've now added alongside your faith in Christ, maybe to make you even more holy or even more surely saved. It's not that. If you accept circumcision, I have bad news you're now obligated to keep the whole law. (laughs) Did you realize what you've just done here, Galatians? Accept circumcision like this, and you are saying that you are seeking justification by the law. And that decision is, uh, is, uh, is quintessentially pictured for them in this matter of submitting to circumcision. Now, I think of that, and, and, and it makes me appreciate the power and the patience of what Paul has done in this letter all the way along. Because you realize, up to now, Paul has not even mentioned the matter of circumcision to them once. I mean, this is the the thing, quintessentially, that they're being pressured to do as a demonstration of this Judaizing approach to relationship to God. He's not even mentioned it to them yet. He did mention, back in chapter 2, verse 3, that the apostles had decided not to circumcise Titus. But he's not spoken to the Galatians about this pressure for them to submit to circumcision. He first needed to make the complete theological argument that he's made to them in the past three chapters. He's needed to win back their hearts to the point where they'll at least give him a hearing here as he spoke about their past together and things like that. He's needed them to understand the nature of the law and the law covenant which they've not understood. So he's needed to do those things. One man wrote this. I think he's got this exactly right. He said, the exhortation, and he's talking about the exhortation to not submit to circumcision. The exhortation comes at this juncture in the letter because Paul has now completed the theological foundation, chapter 2.16 to chapter 5.1, by which the Galatians will be able to grasp the rationale for this command, and the seriousness of the issue. The discussion of the law and circumcision in Galatians are part and parcel of the same question. The Galatians' desire to be circumcised reflects a desire to be under the law as a whole. In other words, this accepting of circumcision in this context is not a small issue. Can you tell by what Paul is telling them here? that this is not a small issue. Look at how direct he gets with them as he comes right to the matter of circumcision. Verse 2, he said, Look, I, Paul, say to you, all words in the Greek that bring over, this is what he says to them, Look, (laughs) I, Paul, say to you. It's been said here that Paul mobilizes his whole authority as an apostle here. He has been patient He has laid the foundation. He's helped them understand why this is the case. But here he simply says, I am telling you as an apostle commissioned by Christ himself, I'm I'm serving you notice that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I mean, that's what it is. This is a bluntness that we've not yet encountered in his gentleness, in his patience, in his knowledge of who they are and what they need. You've been in those kind of conversations where you have something at the beginning of the conversation that you know they need. I mean, it's a real simple thing they need. Just come on. But you know if you lead out with that, they're not going to listen to anything that you say. 
And so you've got to put that away in your pocket, right? And you've got to go through an hour or two weeks of conversation. And all the time it's there, you know what they need, but you know they're not ready to hear it yet. Well, that's what Paul's been doing here. He knows these precious brothers and sisters of his, and he's heard where they are and that their heart is hardening. It's just beautiful to see how he approaches them here. Which, by the way, it just occurs to me, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a, an object lesson for us, isn't it? That's a case study for us in the fact that it is appropriate to bear with and be patient with those that are around us. It's not the mark of faithfulness, is it? To see a problem and storm in the room and declare the problem. It's not always a mark of faithfulness to do that. Sometimes love and wisdom necessitates patiently preparing someone to receive what they need to receive. So this is what we see Paul here warning them against, specifically, against submitting to the demand to receive circumcision. But in reality, he's warning them against the choice, isn't he, to seek justification by means of the law. And there's just one last question to ask here before we move on to verses 4 to 6. We could word it this way. Why? Does he warn them against this? I mean, that's what he's warning them against. Why? What is he saying is the danger? And we've expressed it, but let's just draw special attention to it. Uh, again, he says it in verse 2, verse 3, and verse 4, but he states it in different ways. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 2, here's how he states the reason why. He needs to warn them against this danger. Verse 2, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Verse 3, you will be obligated to keep the whole law. Verse 4, I'll put it this way, you will have been severed from Christ. You will have fallen away from grace. Jesus Christ is a benefit to his people because he is the mediator of a new covenant. He is a new federal head for his people. And if you return to the Mosaic covenant, then, and verse 2 is at its broadest level, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Literally, he says this, Christ will profit you nothing. He will profit you nothing. What is it to be a sinner standing before God and for for, um, Jesus Christ to profit you nothing? What, What is that? There's all kinds of expressions and thoughts and answers maybe going through your head. I think of it like this. The single greatest terror of any man, woman, or child. The rightest thing to be afraid of. Galatians, this is what you are being faced with a decision concerning. Don't dare think that you can hold on to Christ and just add in a reliance upon circumcision and that that's all that has changed. No, no, you lose Christ in that equation. And the reason you lose Christ is that the choice to embrace the law as a means of justification moves you over to that contrary means of seeking justification. Spurgeon put it very well. He said, if you begin being saved by the law, you must go through with it. You must go through with it. Paul put it well elsewhere, Romans 2.25. You can hear the hypothetical nature of what he's saying here, but it's just it's so well done. For circumcision is indeed of value. Do you imagine him starting a sentence like that? For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. In other words, obedience to that law now becomes the basis upon which you're either clean or impure in the sight of God. So keep the law, and circumcision will have benefited you. How many of us in here have kept the law? Is that not one of the prime purposes of the law is to show us how broken we are, how desperately we stand in need of somebody else having mercy on us, standing in our place and in such a way that the Father would actually accept as a vicarious substitute. 
walk onto the path and the ground of the law, and you are obligated to keep the whole thing. That reinforces the notion that when Paul spoke several times earlier in Galatians of the works of the law, those chapters 2 and 3, he talked about that, that he was talking about all the things commanded in the law. And that's his point here in verse 3. If you choose to find your justification by law, you'll be obligated to keep the whole thing. The most compelling thing he says about this is what he says in verse 4. That's why I told you, you'll hear verse 4 brought up a little more than the other verses this morning. This is the opposite of what happens according to Romans 5.2. Let me just read to you. You don't have to turn there. Listen to what he says in Romans 5 verse 2. He says there, Through Christ we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. It's through Christ that we gain access to the grace that we stand upon as Christians. You see, that's, the, that's exactly the other side of the coin to what he says here in verse 4. Adopting a law approach to God entails leaving Christ behind. And so verse 4, being severed from Christ will entail falling away from grace. Union with Christ was the only means by which we were brought into this grace. It's like standing on a trap door or one of those, I once had the great pleasure of sitting on one of those platforms that people throw balls at the thing on the side until they hit it and then down it goes. It's sitting on one of those and then reaching over and thinking nothing will happen when you just smack the thing on the side. You're severed from the means by which you were held up. It's just exactly that. So what we're hearing from Paul's blunt warning to these Galatians then is this. Galatian Christians, if you receive circumcision as this rite of justification, you Gone will be your access to grace. Now let's ask the question here. I told you we would. It's important to. Are we allowed to speak to believers and warn them of apostasy? Are we allowed to do that? Paul does. And that can trouble us. And in a sense, it's understandable. It's maybe even right that it would trouble us, at least at first, because we do hold faithfully to the clear and biblical teaching of the preservation of the saints, don't we? That none can be known by God in a saving way and then be lost to him. And this notion of warning a believer about apostasy can seem to contradict that. I've quoted Tom Schreiner on several occasions in this study, and I want to do that again here because he has written at length in many places about understanding these sorts of warnings that the Bible gives to believers. Listen to what he says here. Maybe you can sympathize with this first um, objection. He says, what if one were to object? But I don't need a warning like this because I am a true Christian and I will never fall away from Christ. He has promised to keep me by his grace. What if that objection comes? He says, in answer to that, he says, I agree in part. He has promised to keep you by his grace. But the warnings are one of the means God uses to keep us in the good way of trusting in Christ. Warnings are not opposed to promises, but are one of the means God uses to fulfill his promises. Just like road signs keep us driving safely onto the highway, so warnings remind us to keep putting our trust in Christ. And I think this is so helpful because it helps me uh, as well to avoid the mistake that says that God's preserving of me somehow nullifies or removes my need to persevere. Does the Bible command me as a Christian to go on trusting consciously in Christ? resting upon him? It absolutely does. I'm commanded to persevere. These two things do not compete with one another. We're simply understanding that when God preserves his children, it's different than, uh, for example, the picture that I was given in one college class at a Christian college. 
that, that made the case that a, a, a person could, even in their childhood, could profess faith in Christ, could really mean it right then, and could then proceed to walk off and live the rest of their life as if, as if there is no God at all. A complete rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That can happen because once saved, always saved. Well, once saved, always saved indeed. What we're understanding here is God commits to hold us fast in faith to his son. That's how we are preserved. And he doesn't do that apart from the use of means in our lives. As we walk through our lives as Christians, we know if God does not hold on to me, I will not hold on to him. Don't we know that to be the case? What we find here is, how does God hold on to me? One way he does it is, he warns us in Scripture of what will happen if we walk away from our Lord. And his sheep hear his voice, don't they? God's people read those warnings in Scripture, and they tremble at the thought. And just like the road signs, it keeps us. Those very warnings are the means he uses to keep us and to cause us to persevere. It just, uh, it just highlights the sovereignty of of God and his good purposes for his children. Now, we can, in a sense, we can take that matter and bring it with us into the second element this morning, verses 4 to 6. Because Paul's now going to shift into some blunt statements, not regarding the Galatians themselves, but regarding faith itself. And I hope you can see how, at this point, we have already long walked on to the, the ground of the nature of saving faith. In God's people. Let me reread verses 4 to 6. He says this You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Paul is describing here what happens when someone fails to persevere. What is it that distinguishes? So remember, when we use the word apostate, we're not just talking about any unbeliever. An apostate is someone who has professed faith in Jesus Christ and probably even walked with his people for a time and then has departed. That's what an apostate is. What distinguishes an apostate from a child of God? It's the distinction that Paul brings out here. It's very helpful when you compare verse 4 and verse 5. The distinction here is between you in this hypothetical, remember, proleptically described situation of verse 4. The distinction is between that you and in verse 5, we ourselves. In fact, the reason that our text in the ESV says we ourselves, there's not an ourselves in the text of what Paul Writes. The reason that we translate it like that, we ourselves, is to get across that Paul is especially emphasizing the we. He doesn't even need to use the pronoun we because it's part of the verb ending. He uses it and he puts it to the very beginning of the sentence, which is not where you normally do that. This is emphatically saying we. How do you get that across? Well, ESV says we ourselves. That's how they get that across. This is the contrast. So it's like in verse, he's saying in 4 and 5, you in this scenario have fallen away from grace, and I know that that would be the case because by contrast, we live this way. This is what is the mark of God's people. And what is that mark? We, by contrast, he says, and he uses three really even eschatological terms. We are eagerly waiting by faith, for the hope of righteousness. Now just stop and notice how he characterizes believers as opposed to the apostate. What kind of a posture, what kind of a life is it that is characterized by an eagerly waiting and a life by faith and a uh, hope of righteousness? Now, you can ask yourself the question then here in verse 5, what is it then that distinguishes the true believer from the apostate? And I'm going to answer that here and then explain myself <laughs> because I don't want to be misunderstood. 
What distinguishes the true believer is not his obedience, rather it's his faith. You see the way that his faith is held out here as the distinguishing mark. We could say it this way, I think, although it's going to need some qualification. Uh, Paul characterizes perseverance as persevering faith, not persevering obedience. Now, when I say that, uh, that, can be meant, that can be taken to say more than I'm meaning to say, if you know what I mean. Having faith in God and in his word, trusting in the work of Christ uh, as an act of faith, you know what that is? That's commanded of us. So it's not as if that, uh, that is a matter of obedience. So I'm not pitting faith against obedience in any sense of those words. What I'm pitting against one another are the competing notions of doing and believing. Do you see the difference between those two? It's very important that you not misunderstand what I'm saying here. There is a difference between living my life by doing and living my life by believing as the fundamental defining principle. And we need to see the clear statement here in verse 5 that God's people are characterized by words like eagerly awaiting and hoping. Here's one way that, uh, that one man put this. He said, believers do not base their hope on their obedience, but in faith cling to what God has done for them in Christ. Such looking away from oneself to Christ is the work of the Spirit, and it cannot be produced by mere human willpower. The Holy Spirit transforms human beings so that they put their trust in God's saving work instead of relying on themselves. I've said that Paul speaks very bluntly about faith in these verses. The bluntness that we're seeing here uh, thus far relates to the primacy of faith as regards perseverance. This faith, the faith that looks like a waiting for the hope of righteousness, is the defining element when it comes to perseverance. But there's a final aspect of faith that Paul speaks to here that we also can sometimes tread lightly around today, and that is the nature of this faith in the context of Christian living. What I mean is, what does this faith actually look like as it finds expression in your life this coming Thursday? Look with me at what he says in verse 6. The picture we've had so far would not be complete without this. Verse 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And one thing this clearly does is to clarify something about true saving faith, and that is that faith is a working faith, if it's a living faith. Even at, Notice, it's defined by a waiting and a hoping, and yet it's a faith that is working in love. I want you to see that this statement in verse 6 serves as a sort of culmination of Paul's argument so far in Galatians. And you can tell that, I think, by hearing how he's going to proceed from here. Look at, let me read just the next few verses. Notice how much this verse, verse 6, seals the argument portion of his letter. Look what he's going to say next week. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Can you tell? He's not continuing the argument there. He has concluded it here at the end of verse 6. And the way he culminates the whole thing is what he says here. Let's notice the language. And I want to compare it with statements he makes in a couple of other places, or one in particular. Here in verse 6, he specifies, he's speaking of the context of union with Christ. In Christ Jesus, he says, something is true that most certainly was not true under the Mosaic Covenant administration. What is that? Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. So here's the question that you and I need to ask then this morning. If that counts for nothing, then in Christ, what does count? What does count? And notice carefully here, the actual thing that he says only matters is one word, faith. 
Being circumcised, being uncircumcised, they count for nothing. The only thing that counts is the presence of true faith. And that fits perfectly with what he has just said in this passage, doesn't it? And the rest of the answer then is a description of the kind of faith he's talking about. What is it that counts? Faith. Kind of faith. Tell me about this faith. It's faith working through love. The life that pleases God and that is empowered by the Holy Spirit is characterized by trust in God and in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And love for others is the fruit or result of that faith. That work, then you could say it like this, that work is not something accompanying faith, uh, standing alongside of faith. It is part of the actual experiential reality of faith. And I would direct your attention to see this even better to what Paul says in the next chapter. Look down at chapter 6 and verse 15. You'll see that he makes the same statement that he's made here in verse 6, but he puts it slightly differently. And we'll try to get through this quickly. It is Mother's Day, and I'm holding us long. I'm in dangerous territory here. Um, Galatians 6, 15. For neither circumcision nor, uh, excuse me, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but. Do you see that? It's what he said in verse 6 of our text. How does he finish it there? Neither counts for anything, but a new creation. So what counts for anything in our text is faith working through love. What counts in Galatians 6.15 is, he says, a new creation. My friends, this, we've seen this many times now in Galatians. The faith that he's describing is explained by and itself produces nothing short of the life of the age to come. This is what's at work as God's people live by faith. It's part and parcel of the new creation. It's true life. Life that's characterized by true faith, but which then actually manifests itself with a life of working through love, he says here. Love. It's interesting, the only time before this that Paul has mentioned the idea of love in Galatians is in chapter 2, verse 20, when he wrote that Christ loved me and gave himself for me. He's not mentioned love other than that. But now, love will come up four times in this chapter alone as the theme he's directing our attention to. And here, love is said to be the instrument or the vessel of that, uh, that, that, that faith creates in order to express itself. Now, this really starts to prepare us for what we're going to see going forward because love is going to top the list of the fruit of the Spirit at the end of this chapter. And we're going to be told twice that love is expressed through service to our brothers and sisters. We don't have time to do this. I was going to have us go to 1 John chapter 4, but you might look back sometime today at what he says, at what John says about love in 1 John chapter 4. Uh, you will notice something if you're reading it in view of what we've said this morning. You'll be, you'll be shocked by the central place that love occupies in the believer. The central place of that love in determining whether one belongs to Christ at all or not. And you'll also be uh, maybe surprised at the extent to which that love is said to express itself in love and service to one another. That is the emphasis, and that's where Paul's going to go uh, for the mo much of the rest of our time in Galatians. The necessity of love as expressed toward God's people that he has put us around. This is the life of a Christian. According to Paul in our passage, this is how true faith inevitably finds expression. And if there's one thing you need to remember from this morning, it's this. That is all that counts in Christ Jesus. Eight verses down from this, Paul's going to say, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And I'll just make one observation. This can't be skipped over. I, I will be honest with you, I'm very much looking at that clock, so forgive me for that. I, uh, I want to encourage you not to look at your watches for the next few minutes and, and think with me here, okay? Okay. Um, one observation or 
application of this. It's just inescapably clear, uh, as we're going to see in the weeks to come. Faith working through love is principally manifested, according to Paul in Galatians, in the church, among brothers and sisters in a local church. It will be inescapably clear to us. So here's a prime takeaway for us this morning. The acts of specific religious observance that give structure to our Christian lives, very important acts, the act of church attendance, the act of scripture reading, the act of prayer in an intentional way, those things are given to us by God and they, they serve us. They are not the places where we content ourselves with seeing Christ's love at work in our lives. If I'm content with seeing that, I I have misunderstood the picture that Jesus holds out to us in his word as to how his love looks as it lives out in the lives of his people. To put it more simply, faith working through love is found where I am worshiping and serving God for the sake of his glory as I serve and love his people that he has given to me. Do not look for the encouraging displays of God's love in you in the mere fact of your church attendance. Look for the encouraging displays of God's love in you in the ways that you have come to know these family members around you. The ways that you change their lives with your presence, with the displays of love and care and investment and mutual submission. A joy and a willingness to be wronged and then to forgive them with the forgiveness you have in Christ and to go on stronger than before. These are the places where we see God's love at work in us and rejoice. And if you want to see the value of the, or the religious import of certain acts that are not accompanied with that love, just look at 1 Corinthians 13, 3. Because the answer there is, it profits me nothing. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we are um, again thankful this week for your gift of your word. We're thankful that you do not leave us alone with our thoughts. Uh, you love us, you meet us where we are uh, with your good intentions in mind, and that is to change us from who we are, to transform us into the image of your Son. And we thank you this morning for the means you've given us of Scripture, of prayer, of fellowship together, and now of the sharing together in your table. We pray, Lord, that you are pleased with the manner and the sobriety with which we attend these gifts from you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.